you know, we have the opportunity to build technology for the world we want to create. Like we can think about what world do we actually want to live in and then do regulations and build technology that creates that world. And that's a huge value proposition for the world, especially facing climate crisis and whatnot. So we need to have somebody who can articulate that story and get people excited about it and not be afraid of technology, be afraid of AI. And that political visionary is missing. Like where is the Barack Obama of Europe? Das ist die Stimme von Ida Tin. Die dänische Unternehmerin hat die Menstruations-App Clue gegründet und hat auch den Begriff Femtech nachträglich geprägt. Was dahinter steckt, das hören Sie jetzt. Damit herzlich willkommen zur neuen Ausgabe des Tech Briefings, dem neuen Media Pioneer Original. Mein Name ist Daniel Fiene und die Geschichte von Ida Tin, die wollen wir mit Daten begleiten. Dabei nutzen wir die Daten von der KI-Datenbank Delphi. Gründer Dr. Robin Tech und sein Team sammeln weltweit Firmendaten, analysieren sie mit künstlicher Intelligenz, primär für Konzerne und Hidden Champions aber auch für diesen Podcast, um innovative Ideen zu finden und mit Zahlen und Fakten zu hinterlegen. Jetzt sage ich erst einmal herzlich willkommen, Dr. Robin Tech. Ja, moin moin, schön wieder dabei zu sein. Ja, wie viele Firmen trackt ihr derzeit denn mit Delphi? Naja, also insgesamt sind es natürlich über 12 Millionen, aber jetzt für diesen Podcast relevant, denn es geht ja um digitale Gesundheit. Da sind wir bei ungefähr 3600 Firmen global, die entsprechende Plattformen entwickeln und anbieten. Und das sind die ganz Großen, wie die chinesische Versicherung Ping An zum Beispiel, aber auch kleine Startups. Ja, eins davon, das haben wir uns ja auch schon mal vor ein paar Wochen hier im Podcast auch angeschaut, auch ein Interview gehabt. Und da haben wir uns mit Medizintourismus beschäftigt. Im Grunde geht es ja immer darum, Gesundheitsversorgung besser, aber auch verfügbarer zu machen. Gerade jetzt in Corona-Zeiten natürlich ein großes Thema, das massiv an Aktualität gewonnen hat. Genau. Und was ich ganz besonders interessant finde, ist, dass Digital Healthcare bisher eher geschlechtsneutral war. Also das ergibt jetzt in Corona-Zeiten natürlich auch total viel Sinn. Aber Männer und Frauen sind zumindest mal ganz objektiv biologisch natürlich teilweise schon massiv unterschiedlich. Und da hast du uns heute etwas Neues mitgebracht. Wir schauen uns an, was hinter dem Begriff Femtech steckt, also Female Technology. Das beschreibt Lösungen, die ganz spezifisch und primär für Frauen sind. Worum geht es denn da konkret? Also es geht um Menstruation und Menopausen. Es geht um Fruchtbarkeit und Verhütung, sexuelle Befriedigung, Schwangerschaft und Schwangerschaftsabbrüche. Gesundheit dann auch ganz allgemein in den eher südlichen Regionen des weiblichen Körpers. Was sagen denn eure Daten über den Femtech-Markt? Ja, also auf jeden Fall viel, viel Dynamik. Global finden zum Beispiel auch immer mehr Investoren und Investorinnen das Thema spannend. Unsere Software Delphi, du hast das ja vorhin schon angesprochen, hat zum Beispiel jetzt uns rausgegeben, dass 2009 gerade mal 45 Millionen Euro in Femtech-Themen investiert wurden. 2018 waren wir dann schon bei 360 Millionen und letztes Jahr, also 2019, sind wir dann bei 690 Millionen Euro angekommen. Das ist verglichen mit, sagen wir mal, dem sehr heißen Thema Micromobility Venture Capital Investitionen natürlich immer noch gering, aber durchaus substanziell und wie gesagt dynamisch. Da ist eine Entwicklung erkennbar. Wir haben ja eben schon Ida Tin gehört. Du hast sie zum Interview getroffen. Was sollten wir über Ida und ihr Startup Clue wissen, bevor wir gleich in das Gespräch eintauchen? Ja, also Ida äh, Tin ist eine der Gründerinnen von Clue und Clue ist eine Fruchtbarkeits- und Menstruations-Tracking-App. 
und auch definitiv ein Pionier in der Femtech-Industrie. Und tatsächlich hat Ida den Begriff Femtech sogar erfunden und geprägt und ist damit vielleicht, kann man sagen, auch eine der Begründerinnen von dieser Multimillionen, Multibillionen bald Euro-Industrie geworden. Und mit dem aktuellen Ausbruch von Covid-19 und der, der globalen Pandemie gehen wir auch davon aus, dass das Thema Health Tracking, Health Apps auch nochmal eine ganz neue Dynamik bekommen wird. Klar, jetzt nicht unbedingt nur in Bezug auf Femtech sondern allgemeiner gesprochen. Aber ich gehe schon davon aus, dass wir hier bleibende Effekte sehen werden. Auch darüber habe ich mit Ida gesprochen. Ansonsten, Clou selbst trackt den natürlichen Zyklus einer Frau. Das heißt, eine Frau gibt verschiedene Daten ein, wie, wie Temperatur, Gefühlslage und eine ganze Reihe anderer Faktoren. Und damit wird dann quasi dieses Tracking auch immer besser. Das heißt, je länger man die App benutzt, desto mehr Menschen die App natürlich auch benutzen, desto aussagekräftiger werden die Ergebnisse und die Empfehlungen auch, die die App dann der Nutzerin primär ja äh, herausgibt. Ida Tin und ihr Partner Hans sind die beiden Mitgründer von Clue. Clue wird heute von über 10 Millionen Menschen schon genutzt und zwar auch in über 190 verschiedenen Ländern. Also ist es wirklich eine absolut globale App und kommt mitten aus Berlin, aus dem Herzen Kreuzbergs, gar nicht so weit von unserem Delphi-Büro auch weg. Wir sind also quasi Nachbarn. Und bevor Ida, und auch das finde ich natürlich als Motorradfahrer super, hat Ida nämlich Motorradtouren organisiert, auch durch die ganze Welt, hat auch ein Bestseller geschrieben darüber. Und Hans, ihr Partner, ist Chairman of the Board, auch Seriengründer. Und die beiden sind nicht nur Geschäftspartner, sondern auch Privatpartner. Und das ganz Schöne und wirklich auch total Romantische ist, dass Ida und Hans sich kennengelernt haben, weil Hans Ida im Auto mitgenommen hat, als sie per Anhalter von Dänemark nach Berlin zurück musste. I'm really happy to have the two of you here, Ida and Hans, and uh, you're both the founders of uh, Clue. It's a fertility tracking app. And why don't you, why don't the two of you introduce yourself? I can start. So I'm from Denmark. That's why we're speaking English, though we've been in Berlin for a long time. I've always been an entrepreneur. I never really had a job anywhere. I've tried a few times. It didn't go well. I got fired before I kind of got started. I went to business school, very creative business school. And at the end of it, I was sort of thinking, I want to create jobs. I want to go out and build jobs more than try and find one. And then I started a motorcycle touring company with my dad. And we did that for five years. And it was a lot of fun. It was a great lifestyle. But towards the end, I wanted to start a family. Um, and also this question had popped up like, why has there been so little innovation in family planning for 70 years since the bill came out? And it really provoked me. I was like, this cannot be true. Um, and this was in 2009. So the smartphones were coming out. The first iPhone came out. And I thought, what if we could collect enough data, put it on the phone, and people could really understand what is going on in their bodies? That would be incredibly powerful. So that was the beginning. Um, and then I met Hans. Yeah, and then we met. Um, I'm from Berlin originally, I'm born in Kreuzberg, which is sort of claim for fame when I walk around uh, Oranienstraße. My background is in economics, so I studied in Maastricht. And um, pretty much after university, I realized I'm not going to be, I was never fired from a job, fortunately. But similar to Ida, I was not going to fit in anywhere. 
and only later realized that when you start your own thing, you're called an entrepreneur. I only realized that in my mid-20s that that's actually, ah, that's why I've been not fitting in. And we met at a tech conference in Denmark called Reboot, uh, which is um, for sort of by the time the most renowned conference. It was actually the last edition they ever run. Ida already had the idea for Clue. And, uh, and then we pretty quickly decided to have children together after like a week. And then three months later, Ida was pregnant. And uh, our son is already nine. So I'm... No, wait, wait, wait a second. So a, me, a week after the two of you met, you decided to have kids. We, we talked about it. Let's, okay. let's put it that way. It was on the table. Yeah. Would you agree? <laughs> I had just turned 30. I was like, I'm taking no risks with my ex. <laughs> and I was like, you can be with folks for like four years and then it still doesn't work out. I'm like, this guy, he looks kind of cool. I think we could share some values. He's really sweet with his sisters. Let's go. And Hans was a bit like, can we wait a few years? I was I like, uh -uh. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah. And then I was going on a motorcycle tour for a while. And so I was going to be gone for a while. And Hans was like, if we're having a baby, I want it to be a summer baby. And I looked in the calendar. I was like, then it's now. Then, no, yeah. you didn't say then. You said then it's today. Yeah, I got pregnant. Like, I got pregnant period. that day. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. So our son is now nine and is uh, almost a teenager. Uh, it feels like. But you um, know, I have to say one more thing to how we met because somebody had kind of talked me into having this sort of workshop on my business idea, and it was like late, and you know, there was nobody there, and I was sitting out on the lawn, and it was like one other person. It was embarrassing. <laughs> And this guy's walking kind of past and I'm looking like, you're going to sit down, right? You're going to sit down, you're going to sit down. So it'll be a little bit less embarrassing. We'll be at least three people. And he looked like he was 17. I couldn't care less about family plan. I was like, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> and it was Hans. I and then still he, look like I'm 17. Of course. And but then he actually had some good questions. And then basically, um, <clears throat> I wanted to hitchhike to Berlin where I'd lived before. And Hans was like, well, I have like, I'm the car's empty like you can get it right and then years later i realized he had kicked out his friends to make the car empty <laughs> and then we missed the ferry and yeah so that's how it started by accident of course you missed the ferry but then it took two years to start clue because we then had a had a child and um, and the idea was there after after edith's motorcycle tour yeah, yeah. great so which motorcycle do you have do you still do you still ride motorcycles i do excellent hans gave me a motorcycle for my birthday I have a BMW. Nice. I'm, I'm more of a Honda guy. Yeah. I have an XBR 500. I, I think my heart is really um, at the Aprilia I had when I was... So I did a two-year motorcycle tour in the States. All right. So uh, you met, uh, you decided to have kids, um, then you went on a motorcycle tour, then you, you were probably already pregnant at that time, and then it took another two years until you decided to found Clue. It, started, it, it, took, it took the birth of a child and finding a kindergarten place for that. <laughs> and and only after Elliot started, Elliot is, is our son's name, started going to kindergarten, we um, we started Clue, really. And Ida had the sort of minds. But you were actually thinking, I wasn't part of, of the Clue founding story at this point. Um, Ida was thinking about, should I become an artist or should I become an entrepreneur? That was your question at the time. But, where, you know, I actually started talking to VCs like at day one of having the idea. And I wonder what I actually talked to them about. It must have been some very strange conversations. But I remember what you talked to them about because Ida had done a business plan and made a website for the business plan. And we still have an archive. We should republish that. And sort of put out this imaginary person called Anna back in the time. What was her name, Anna? And you described her fertility journey or her journey of not wanting to get pregnant. And the entire business case was online publicly available. Um, and that's how you pitch to people. So you just send them a link. 
Well, you did need a passcode to be fair, but my idea okay. was that it needed to be like a like a thing you could iterate on. Um, but it's just to say that so while I was pregnant, I was definitely thinking about this idea. Then started university in Berlin, that didn't go so well either. So, but what, were my you first, fired from your from your university? I realized well? that my German was actually really, really not <laughs> up to snuff. Um, so that was one thing. But also, I knew I actually just wanted to build Clue. And uh, but I met my first co-founder because we wanted to build hardware, and he was like, "I think I can help with that." And then shortly after, Hans joined, and then we worked for a year till we legally founded the company and found two more co-founders. Me and four guys. Can you imagine? That's how it started. That's the story of the beginning. But why, why Berlin? You know, it could have been any other place. Copenhagen is a nice city. You know, in 2009, there wasn't much of an ecosystem for technology in Copenhagen. So that was one thing. I was poor, had a baby, and the flat I had was really small for a family. And Hans managed to get us a bigger flat in Berlin that we could afford. Did you kick and, out your flatmates? <laughs> <laughs> no, I found a flat for the family. but I And I was making money. And... It definitely seemed like a better place to hire people to. And Hans also really wanted to live in Berlin, to be fair. No, but there's also really a business reason for that. I mean, it is, it is. I mean, that's what you said in the beginning, but to attract talent today, Berlin is a, is a sort of prime location, oh, yeah. right? We have 22 different passports in the company of 70 people, and it's super diverse, and people want to move here from the U.S. And I think there's very few places in Europe that has such a strong pull in Berlin, and it's not decelerating, I have actually, my impression is it's accelerating because there is a critical mass here. And so there's sort of this magnet effect that more and more people are coming. Um, what is hard in terms of Berlin as a location is still, and I think that's true for every European city, is, is um, uh, senior executive talent. Because in, in our space, we're in consumer mobile, there's very few consumer mobile executives that have seen the growth that other Silicon Valley companies have seen. We have Spotify as an example that has done that but then there is a pretty long gap so if you uh, want to hire um, really on the executive level you will need to go mm. you, at least um, European but probably um, over, yeah. over the pond yeah. let's talk about Clue so what what can I do with Clue is it a man asking or is the you what, a, what, a okay woman? let me rephrase that what can one do with Clue you can understand what's going on in your body related to your reproductive health which is um, a pretty big black box for most people. Why am I having pain? How many more years can I have babies? When am I going to have my next period? Why is my mood strange? What's happening with my sexuality, my sex drive? So we help people track their bodies and provide them with a lot of educational content that helps them feel sort of, if not in control, then at least aware of what's going on and also enables them to go and seek medical care if something is off. Robin, was ich schon über Medizin und Tech gelernt habe, es geht da auch um gute Versicherungen, es geht da auch um Regulierung. Wie ist das hier im Femtech-Bereich mit diesen beiden Punkten? Ja, absolut äh, wichtig natürlich. Also wie bei jeder ähnlichen neuen und sich auch rasant entwickelnden Lösung, also auch nicht anders hier jetzt im Bereich Healthcare, gibt es ganz offensichtliche Fragen und die drehen sich um Qualitätssicherung und natürlich auch um Regulierung. Und heute ist es halt natürlich auch weiterhin noch so, dass Apps, die Menstruationszyklen tracken, die sind zwar sehr beliebt, aber ganz oft auch inakkurat. 
Und die Columbia University zum Beispiel hat eine Studie gemacht, haben sich 108 Perioden-Tracking-Apps angeschaut und nur 20 von denen haben tatsächlich akkurate Vorhersagen gemacht und nur 5% haben tatsächlich auch Erkenntnisse, also medizinische und peer-reviewed medizinische Erkenntnisse mit einfließen lassen. Also da gibt es wirklich eine ganz, ganz große Spanne, was Qualität und Präzision angeht. Und Regulierung spielt dann entsprechend natürlich eine ganz große Rolle, denn ich meine, da müssen wir, glaube ich, nicht drüber reden, wenn Menschen anfangen, sich auf solche Apps zu verlassen, wie sie sich auf Verhütungsmittel verlassen würden, dann können die Konsequenzen durchaus ungewollt sein. Das hat zum Beispiel auch ein Wettbewerber von Clou schmerzlich lernen müssen. Natural Cycles äh, ist, ein, wie gesagt, ein Wettbewerber, haben fast 34 Millionen Euro auch an Finanzierung bekommen, also schon ziemlich ordentlich und wurden in den USA von der Food and Drug Administration, also der FDA, sogar als Natural Contraceptive Device zugelassen, also ein natürliches Verhütungsmittel. Das Ganze hat dann aber natürlich, wie das so oft ist, eine ordentliche Kontroverse hervorgerufen, weil nämlich 37 schwedische Nutzerinnen die App genutzt haben und unerwartet und wahrscheinlich auch ungewollt schwanger geworden sind mit dieser App. Kontrovers diskutiert wird nicht nur dieser Fall bei Natural Cycles, auch andere Apps in dem Bereich haben schon Schlagzeilen gemacht. Absolut. Also eine andere App, Fem, der Name, war in den Schlagzeilen, weil rausgekommen ist, dass sie von Abtreibungsgegnern und Gegnerinnen gesponsert wurde und dann auch in der App Unsicherheit und Missinformationen zu Verhütungsmethoden gestreut haben soll. Und das ist natürlich enorm Gefährlich. Also nicht nur, dass inakkurate Vorhersagen gemacht werden von den Apps in Bezug auf den Zyklus, nicht nur, dass medizinisch nicht gestützte ähm, Informationen benutzt werden, äh, sondern natürlich auch noch äh, jetzt wirklich mit Missinformationen ganz aktiv gearbeitet wird. Also ganz, ganz große Gefahr, gerade bei so einem kritischen Thema wie, ich sag's mal ganz äh, plump, ich möchte schwanger werden oder ich möchte auch gerade nicht schwanger werden. Let's talk about... Science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, despite their popularity, a significant portion of other health tech apps are not backed by science and produce either insignificant or inaccurate predictions. How, how do you guys deal with this? So maybe because there is so much, so much misinformation in female health and so many taboos and weird things going on, it was... It's just been baiting from the beginning. We need to be really science-based and we need to make sure that everything we put out has been double, triple fact-checked. Um, and also a commitment to create new knowledge. That's part of why we're doing so much science work with uh, research institutions around the world. I mean, if you Google something about female health, it's a complete jungle. I will say you really are very poorly positioned as a normal person to understand Is the information you're finding credible? Um, even things that look really sciencey might be totally biased because there is an unknown agenda behind, etc. So, so you know, building something that people can trust um, has to be built on science, and it's also fun. It's also like for us, it's incredibly gratifying to just know and feel good about what we do, and it's a big part of our identity and what attracts people to come work for Clue. The sense of sort of pride and that we are scientifically solid. <laughs> and what's your opinion on on other, you know, some of these other apps out there? For example, you know, Natural Cycles. They 
roughly raised uh, the same amount of venture capital as you guys did. They had a huge controversy uh, around, uh, you know, 37 Swedish uh, women um, becoming unexpectedly pregnant while using the app. Another one called Fem. Uh, it's it's an app that actually discourages trust in app-based fertility tracking. So how do you deal with this? I think at the at the core, you have to have a really honest communication with your users. Like, hey, this is the risk. This is the benefits. This is the downsides. Or those are the downsides. And really trust that people can make good decisions for themselves. In my opinion, the big mistake that Natural Cycles made was that they said, this is perfect for everybody. It's better than the pill. Um, and that's a shame because they might have you know, a product that's actually really valuable for some users, but for other users, it's really not helpful. And, you know, helping people navigate and make that right product decision, I feel is a responsibility when you build something which is like pretty, you know, it's kind of important whether you get people on one pregnant or not. Um, yeah, so I think it's kind of the honesty and, and you know, not overpromising what your product can do. It's really key. We also need innovation, right? Nothing comes out perfect. They have managed to get FDA clearance and CMR approval for something that's really new. I mean, they're also paving the way for others to come and then do something that's better. In the same time that Natural Cycles users got pregnant, users of condoms got pregnant, right? And I think it is, has, it is as Ida has said, it's something to do with the promise and how you talk to the users. And we think they are a great company and they have... Um, they were a little bit unlucky in the positioning and then they were also really unlucky in the media push and it, it didn't didn't stop so far. So it's, um, yeah. They maybe also didn't have the best counseling on how to react when there is a media problem. Die Daten haben ja auch einen sehr großen Wert für die Forschung. Welche Rolle spielt denn Femtech bisher in der Forschung? Wie immer gilt, Daten sind wertvoll, aber auch wirklich nur für den, der daraus was machen kann. Und in der Medizinforschung, da gibt es auf jeden Fall viele, die aus den Daten was machen können, denn es gibt eine enorme Lücke, also eine Unterrepräsentanz von weiblichen Probandinnen zum Beispiel, auch immer noch. In den USA, da sind wir wieder bei der FDA, die haben zum Beispiel erst 1993 dann äh, Frauen on mass scale sozusagen für Studien zugelassen und auch heute gibt es weiterhin eine Unterrepräsentanz von ähm, weiblichen Probandinnen unter anderem, und da sind wir wieder beim äh, Zyklus, weil dann immer noch für den Menstruationszyklus einer Frau äh, quasi, dass der, der muss auch einfaktoriert werden bei Studien und das ist manchen einfach zu aufwendig und dann bleiben sie bei Männern. Clou auf der anderen Seite quasi hat natürlich jetzt enorm viele Daten. Wir haben es vorhin schon gehört. Millionen von Menschen nutzen die App über 190 Länder von Teenagern bis zu bis zu 60-Jährigen und drüber. Und das ist natürlich eine wahnsinnige Spanne und ein, ein ganz, ganz toller Datenschatz. Clou ist hier entsprechend dann auch Forschungspartnerschaften eingegangen, unter anderem mit der University of Oxford, mit Stanford und Columbia ist jetzt quasi dabei zu schauen, wie können wir anonymisiert natürlich und agglomeriert Daten nutzen, um auch psychologische Veränderungen um den Eisprung herum besser untersuchen und verstehen zu können, Auswirkungen auf das Immunsystem besser verstehen zu können und natürlich für ganz viele Frauen auch ganz wichtig, wie sie Menstruationsschmerzen vielleicht besser mitigieren können. We just talked about data and that clue views data as being part of you know its its domain 
Now, on the other hand, through data sharing, innovation um, is enabled or you know, sometimes accelerated and, and, and catalyzed. So what's your view on this? Could Clue Data maybe in future become part of a bigger medical data set that others have access to? Well, it's kind of what we already are doing. So we actually did a call for proposals earlier this year where we said, hey, science community, we're sitting on this pretty amazing pool of data. Would you like to conduct studies using part of this data set anonymized, um, which we have consent from, from our users? Um, and we got a lot, a lot of really, really interesting applications. And we're now um, actively doing nine science partnership that came out of this. Um, because we, as I mentioned before, we, we do feel sort of a responsibility as when we're governing this data to make it work for social good or for a societal good which in the end we hope will benefit our users as well. Um, but do I think that there is an issue more globally around health data not flowing around the system and really making, <laughs> you know, creating the better health outcomes it could? Yes, I think there is a problem. And how do you balance this with data privacy? It's super tricky. But right now we have a very, very clunky, old school, non-standardized, global, non-communicating system of data not flowing anywhere. And that's honestly quite sad to look at. What's your view on the future of medical data and also what medical data will enable us to do? We will come to a point where data really is controlled and managed by the, by the patients or users themselves. Um, and we will start seeing that when you have longitude data, health data, it becomes kind of like a life insurance. We will start to be able to do preventive health care much more effectively. Um, and we will have much more personalized medicine. I know this is almost like a cliche to say, but it's really true. I mean, in female health, people are just not the same and you need different kind of care and you need to look out for different things. So I think in 10 years, 20 years, people will feel that the data really is empowering them to make good health decisions in a way that's not the case today. And I think we will have a lot of insights along the way what actually drives illnesses and what drives sort of unsatisfying health outcomes. And I, like my personal thesis is that there's a lot more mental health going on uh, than we currently um, recognize. I think there's a lot more to be found in early childhood development, even prenatal development that sort of determines what health lives people later have. And that um, that these insights will drive us probably to a more aware society about how we treat each other and what are the right treatment ways. The, the health space moves a little slower than other digital spaces, and but once it moves, it really moves. And I think we will gonna see a lot of innovation in that space in the next 20 years. It's gonna be super exciting. And also, we I think regulation is really important, and it's good that we have something called FDA and CR, CMR. I mean, we need to also not move so fast that things break along the way. Health is different in that way. And also on the cultural side, I mean, you know, when you when you as a tech company decide like what a cutoff value for, you know, are you going to pop up this, you know, alert that something is off? Like you, you make a lot of really sensitive choices and, um, and you shape culture along the way and you've got to think really hard about what you send out in the world. Robin, Lass uns nochmal mit der App Clue beschäftigen. Die lebt ja nicht nur von den Daten, die 
ich als, ja in dem Fall Nutzerin eingeben kann, sondern auch von Variables, die ich damit verknüpfen kann. Also zum Beispiel Kleidung, die mit Elektronik ausgestattet ist. Wie kann ich mir das vorstellen? Also das finde ich ist auch wirklich eine ganz spannende Weiterentwicklung des Ganzen, denn momentan basiert das alles, was ich eingebe, auf meiner eigenen Einschätzung und natürlich auch meiner eigenen Präzision, sage ich mal. Also wir erwarten einerseits von der App, dass sie super präzise ist, aber gleichzeitig muss ich als Nutzer und Nutzerin natürlich auch ganz präzise sein. Und da können Wearables durchaus eine interessante, komplementäre Rolle einnehmen. Und Clou ist da den Weg gegangen, dass sie zum Beispiel mit dem Ura-Ring jetzt kooperieren. Das ist so ein Schlaf- und Activity-Tracker mit Fitbit. Das kennen wahrscheinlich viele. Das ist ein Wearable-Fitness-Tracker, der von Google übernommen wurde. Und Apples Health-App, die, wenn sie zum Beispiel mit der Apple Watch kombiniert wird, auch Daten wie zum Beispiel den Puls mit aufnehmen kann. Digital obviously is kind of the new element in here because you know menstruation cycles, fertility that has been around since you know humanity and everyone and everything has been around. Um, what exactly is it that makes Clue possible today? I mean, I think part of it is the the easy and continuous data collection because what what you might have argued that previously. Um, women would have entered data in their diary or in their sort of paper calendar. That data you can capture now over time and make sense of it over time. So part of digital is here the sort of accessibility and and also the um, the, the mobile penetration that smartphones are available to many people in the world and to the people whose smartphones are not available today, they will be available in the next 10, 20 years as, as, as we get um, wealthier. And I think that makes for a sort of super exciting case. And obviously, on the data aggregation side, we can look at, at patterns um, if we pull all that data into databases and just look at it, make sense of it, and then play it back to the user. And I think that data intelligence and that we can read something from the data is obviously, that's, that's not been there before. Um, and then also we have a whole host of sensors that we didn't have before. So we can understand things about the body that you know we didn't know before our heart rate how much we move all these things and i i think pretty soon we'll start having sensors that can look into the body on a more molecular level that will open up new possibilities but also and that's really important to mention is a big cultural shift there is something in our time where people are starting to question why is it embarrassing to have biology that creates human beings um You know, why should I be ashamed of this part of life? Why can I not, you know, there's very little cultural space for women to actually live with the reality that people are living with. Um, so they kind of, you know, pretend it's not happening, <laughs> suppress it. Um, and this is shifting and it's not shifting only here in Europe and the US, it's also a global move. And then people start demanding technology to work for them, you know. Why don't we, you know, we still don't have a recommendation engine for birth control. It's complete trial and error. It's kind of old school. It's pretty <laughs> say the least. It is, right? And people are starting to say, hey, you know, Netflix can tell me what movies I should see. But when I go to the doctor, they just give me something random. Like, why? And this is true in so many areas of female health where, you know, it's like, oh, we don't, we don't know why we have period cramps. Shouldn't somebody do some research? Like... <laughs> You know, and the list is really long. So people are starting to demand better care mm. and demand that technology works for it. 
gerade beim Thema Gesundheit, da sollten wir jetzt auch nochmal über den Datenschutz sprechen, damit die persönlichen Daten natürlich nicht in die falschen Hände geraten. Da sind ja auch schon einige Anbieter unangenehm aufgefallen. Ja, also da spielen natürlich auch die ganz großen Trends mit rein. Ähm, allen voran immer günstigere Smartphones, allgegenwärtiges Internet zum Beispiel. Die haben auch schon vorher dazu geführt, dass heute Tracking immer einfacher und immer möglicher ist. Also vielleicht ein ne, kurzer Exkurs jetzt auch zu Covid-19. Ähm, viele sind überrascht, wie viel Google, wie viel Apple eigentlich weiß über Mobilitätsverhalten von Menschen. Äh, das ist in den entsprechenden äh, Zirkeln vorher schon bekannt gewesen. Aber das ist auch die Welt, in der wir leben. Äh, übertragen auf den, äh, den Health-Tech und vielleicht sogar ganz konkret den Femtech-Markt. Äh, da, genau wie du sagst, gab es auch schon einige Negativschlagzeilen. Also wenn wir uns anschauen, die Menstruations-App Flow zum Beispiel. Immerhin 15 Millionen Nutzerinnen. Maya auch über 5 Millionen Downloads im, im Google Play Store, die teilen wohl ihre Daten auch mit Facebook für Werbezwecke. Und die Fülle der Daten ist ja auch verrückt, wenn man sich das mal vor, vor Augen hält und wenn man drüber nachdenkt. Also die, die Daten, die Menschen da eingeben, das reicht von, von wann hattest du zum letzten Mal Sex und welche Verhütung hast du benutzt, aber auch bis zu wie sieht deine Haut heute aus und was hast du gegessen und so weiter und so weiter. Also Wahnsinn, was da alles, was da alles erfasst wird und genau wie du sagst, die persönlichen Daten äh, sind hochsensitiv und müssen äh, auf jeden Fall geschützt werden. Right, and the core of all this is collecting more data and, and making sense of it. How do you handle data? How do you make sure that something like this does not happen? Or is that actually part of your business model? There are like the basics of making sure that data sort of security is in order, that you don't store data that can identify people the same place with their user data, etc. But The more challenging part for the tech community is really the choices that founders make around what they do with people's data. So I think it's an ethical challenge more than it's a technological challenge. And at the core of that is how do we make money and how do we make money in the app economy, which is really built on the premise that users don't understand how we make money because if they knew, they wouldn't want to use the products. And so I... You know, I think it's I think it's great that companies are being called out when they do something that if they had to look their users in their eyes and tell them, yeah, that would be uncomfortable. And so our take is you gotta do what's right for users. Just full stop. Okay. So let's talk about money. How how does how does Clue make money? So we have been privileged to raise a lot of venture capital which means that we haven't had to make a lot of money till now. So now how, we are how building... Much, how much venture capital did you raise? 30 million euros. Right. What we did a year ago was that we wrote a set of principles on how we're going to monetize. And a really key thing is that users understand how we make money. So we want to do something that's consumer-facing um, and really upfront, um, which I believe is part of building trust that users understand how we make money. So we have a subscription model. And what we have learned, we've done a ton of testing the last year, is that people are actually super willing to pay for Clue just because they like using Clue. It's not actually because they get that extra feature. And who would have thought? <laughs> you know, and that was cool. It's like Wikipedia or, or The Guardian. Um, and that's something we are learning to, you know, like any other subscription model, you have to optimize for conversion. We're in the process of that. And then we're building a still to be announced bigger feature that will also be on a subscription basis, but not on a, like, if you, if you want to play, you got to pay. <laughs> so, so that's, 
So we, we're not selling data. It's not part of our business model. It won't ever be. I mean, I, you know, could you imagine some sort of edge case where it's really helpful for pharmaceuticals to understand side effects of the birth control and that's really what users need so they could get better birth control? And maybe, you know, but it would have to be extremely transparent. Can we make the user aware of what's happening to their data in, in the onboarding? And that's what we're striving for. Yeah, we've done a fair amount of communication to our users, like really actually writing the terms of service so people can understand them. We really encourage them to read them. We've written blog posts like, what do we actually do with your data? We just this week published a new one about how does data flow in the in the paid acquisition game. It's extremely complicated. And it's number two in a series that I'm that I'm writing about, really helping users understand where data goes. No. It's complicated. The last one's going to be about selling data and why not selling data. <laughs> yeah. That's really yeah, interesting. I think so, the key thesis to summarize is that we don't believe that within health and within consumer health, which we are, there's going to be a big company build that relies their model on selling data to other even bigger companies. I think if we want to build a big company, we need to handle it like, um, like a company like Apple handles. It was says the users, not our product. Um, the users are our customer and we sell them a good product, but they're not becoming the product themselves. And we believe that that's the working thesis on which you can build a really big company in specifically in health. Maybe that's different if you build a marketing platform, but within health, um, it's, it's a game of trust and we have very sensitive data and trust is the center of it. And it's also the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I find this really interesting because, you know, obviously we see a lot of patterns, especially like monetization patterns and my impression is that for about a decade, the the entire spiel has been around collecting data from users and selling this data to to others who who may have an interest in in this data. And now, with privacy and you know, last but not least, also you know the European GDPR, um, the um, the Data Protection Act. At, um, has has led to this new consciousness, also from from the from the user side, that you know their data it may be their data, you know, and it belongs to them. And now there is this new and emergent pattern of companies, and you put it quite well, you know, of handling the user as the user and the client, and not necessarily the product anymore. So I, I and I, I find it really interesting, you know, to see more and more companies kind of going down this path. And let's briefly talk about revenues. So you you are already making some revenue. When, if ever, do you think uh, will Clue make a profit? It's always the question. I mean, we could make a profit today if we did different things to the company. So. I think for more the for me the more important question is what kind of business do I want to build, and I think there's you know, there's so many things that I really really want to do for our users. So that means I'm going to have to build a big company so that I have the privilege to do all these things, which means it's probably more attractive to keep investing and keep growing and maybe doing more financing rounds to keep being able to do that. But if we had to, we could. And will there ever be a point where Clue makes money? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, if we, we, we just talked about it before we started recording here, is, is WeWork, right? WeWork has not, has, has, has a cost side, right? And the cost side is we actually need to rent the space themselves before we re-rent it to others. And, and, and that's quite real cost. If we deliver an extra feature to an extra customer, our marginal cost is close to zero. 
And I think, and we don't even need to license content like a company like Spotify needs to do. We literally have sort of marginal cost interest here. And so that, that's to Edith's point. We could be profitable today because the, it's just that dependent on the cost base. We make revenue and if we cut the cost to the revenue, that's easy because, but and there's no additional cost to serving mm-hmm. to user. I think it's a very strategic question. The question it always comes down to is growth versus revenue, right? And how do you balance those? And I think the, the, the way to do this is to balance them that you have optionality in both directions at all times. What's the purpose of the company you build? I think Ida and I, we are, well, I can, you can speak for yourself. I really love what we're doing and I, I loved, love the mission and I love the purpose. And if you love the mission, love the purpose, and you, you see that it's not like a job and it's not like a company you build to sell, the decisions you take in the company, they become less about yourself and more about the actual achievement of the mission. And, uh, and I think we're in this privileged position to take decisions that are, that are driven by the mission we have. And if, we, if the right thing is to become profitable tomorrow, we'll do that. And if the right thing is to continue growing, because the numbers show that that's possible, we do that. But we follow what is sort of neutrally there as, as a direction anyways. And I presume Europe and maybe Germany and Berlin in particular are you know, special places in a way uh, to, to follow this path. Because as we know, you know, Silicon Valley is very different from that and uh, China is a whole other story. So let's talk a little about why you guys still haven't moved to Silicon Valley. I think sort of just connecting the, the data privacy thing to that question, I think, um, and, and we haven't mentioned GDPR at all yet, I think GDPR is for me is a brand value for Europe. We have a competitive edge here in Europe have, having privacy. It, it is regarded as a hindrance to innovation, and I believe it's the opposite. I believe other countries will follow And we are a role model here. And I think that's pretty exciting. We have moved um, for a mix of personal and business reasons. I, I think it makes a lot of, Berlin is a great, we talked about it earlier, is a great place to start a company. Um, and, um, and, and there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's in a way beneficial for us to be a sort of big fish in a small pond versus a small fish in a big pond. And I think that's, there's some adverse effects here. And then on the private side, we also really wanted to raise our kids in, in, in Europe. What could Europe or Germany do better? Yeah, I have one thing. <laughs> one thing, and I think I have one thing only, and I, I might even go into politics with that one thing. We need to copy Stanford. And for some reason, and I understand that the reasons in Germany are the, the reasons of a federal state that has sort of, where Bildung um, und Sache, but we need a... We need a one lighthouse, possibly even a European lighthouse university for IT and put billions and billions into it and get the German professors that are currently in the Valley back and pay them good salaries and not give up on digital innovation and saying we lost against the US and China. And we're in a little bit in this we lost position. And the only one uh, walking around building a tech university is Thomas Tom Bachem from Code. And it's a small initiative compared to what it should be. And I I, like if it was on me, I would give him or a state initiative a hundred billion dollars and 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 build that out because I we have the risk of completely losing track, um, and I think it starts a lot with um, with talent, um, and then the ecosystem will grow from there. Mm-hmm. So education and academic ecosystem, Ida, what do you think? Yeah, I think you know you mentioned Silicon Valley is like the hardcore capitalistic model where people 
only care about making money. You have China where it's all about something else. We don't even know really what it is, but it's definitely not about purpose. And in Europe, we have the opportunity to be something which is, you know, we have the opportunity to build technology for the world we want to create. Like we can think about what world do we actually want to live in and then do regulations and build technology that creates that world. And that's a huge value proposition for the world, especially facing climate crisis and whatnot. So we need to have somebody who can articulate that story and get people excited about it and not be afraid of technology, be afraid of AI. And that political visionary is missing. Like where is the Barack Obama of Europe? That's really inspiring. And I, I kind of want to draw this bow to the to the beginning, you know, when you said, you know, that you were fired from so many jobs and then ultimately you, re you realize, you know, it's like, I don't want to be a job consumer. I want to be a job producer. Kind of directed at the two of you. What do you like most? What excites you the most about being entrepreneurs? Possibility to shape the world. It's a very liberating journey to do what you believe in and be able to do that. And it's also very humbling that we're able to do that. And, and I think we want to continue to do that. I want to keep going and build a big company. Great. Thank All you. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Robin, was nimmst du aus deinem Gespräch mit Ida Tin mit? Also ich habe auf jeden Fall enorm viel gelernt, auch natürlich als Mann und als Freund einer Freundin. Für mich war spannend, Femtech-Apps, die Perioden und Fruchtbarkeit tracken, sind für mich nochmal näher beleuchtet worden und zwar in mehreren Aspekten. Also einmal die Nutzung, die reicht ja wirklich von Elfjährigen, die gerade ihre erste Periode bekommen haben, über Frauen, die schwanger werden wollen und solche, die es halt gerade nicht wollen. Und dann natürlich bis zur Menopause, wenn sich auch nochmal enorm viel im Körper der Frau verändert. Dann fand ich natürlich auch nochmal sehr spannend, wie mit so unglaublich intimen Daten umgegangen wird. Da sind Unternehmen wie Clou dann Datenwächter, aber es gibt andere, die gerade und vielleicht ausschließlich mit solchen Daten Geld verdienen. Ich meine, das kennen wir ja auch in, bei, bei vielen Digitalunternehmen. Die geben ganz viel umsonst, aber benutzen halt die Daten und verwerten die. Und auch deshalb glaube ich, dass jeder Nutzer und jede Nutzerin ganz knallharte Transparenz einfordern sollte. Dann kann Frau ja immer noch für sich selbst entscheiden, wie und für welchen Dienst sie äh, zahlen will. Ähm, aber die Transparenz ist meiner Meinung nach äh, enorm wichtig. Enorm interessant auch für mich äh, der Aspekt der Forschungsanwendung. Also mir war nicht klar, dass es eine ganz starke Unterrepräsentanz von Frauen und von Probandinnen da gibt. Und äh, da kam mir dann auch wieder die Idee dieser Datenspende. Das gibt es im Mobilitätsbereich zum Beispiel. Und angewendet auf den Fall hier äh, könnte man sich überlegen, Nutzerinnen können quasi ganz aktiv ihre Daten spenden und damit bessere Forschung ermöglichen. Und, und das muss ich äh, als Vertreter der XY-Chromosom-Fraktion sagen, ich würde mir wünschen, dass auch Mailtech an Fahrt aufnimmt. Also Vorsorge, Sorgen, Gesundheit sind auch oft männerspezifisch und neue Technologien und Plattformen könnten einen Riesenunterschied machen, meiner Meinung nach. Wie geht es deiner Meinung nach weiter? Also ich glaube, dass das Thema Digital Health äh, gerade jetzt nochmal enorm an Fahrt aufnehmen wird. Wir, wir sprachen ja vorhin schon über Infektionstracker und ich glaube, dass da auch die Gesamtbevölkerung jetzt durch Covid-19 nachhaltig für digitale Lösungen nochmal sensibilisiert wird. Und das wird natürlich auch diesem ganzen Gesundheitstracking-Markt nochmal eine ganz andere Dynamik verpassen. Robin, herzlichen Dank. Ja, Daniel, vielen Dank dir und bis zum nächsten Mal. Und ich danke auch Ihnen fürs Zuhören. Wenn Sie Feedback haben, schicken Sie es uns gerne. Die E-Mail-Adresse lautet techbriefing at mediapioneer.com. 
Das Tech Briefing gibt es auch als Newsletter über mediapioneer.com slash techbriefing, begleitend auch zu unseren Themen von heute. Ich sage nochmal die Adresse mediapioneer.com slash techbriefing. Die nächsten Podcasts gibt es dann schon am kommenden Donnerstag. Mein Name ist Daniel Fiene und dann starten wir gemeinsam in die digitale Zukunft. <lacht>